In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even narrowing watch? down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm going to be joined by Pamela Pierce who's in The Legend of Boggy Creek, Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues, was also a makeup artist for Hawkins Breed and Sound with Sacred Ground. Her dad is the famous independent filmmaker, Charles B. Pierce. How are you doing today, Miss Pierce? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, I'm glad you can make it because your dad has done many films, that I've enjoyed growing up and watching the legend of boggy Creek, the Norsemen, the town, that dreaded sundown, the invictors, just to name a few. And you've been either involved in front of the camera, behind the camera, or were on the set for virtually all your dad's films. Correct. Uh, yes, sir. I was, I was actually in the legend of boggy Creek. The first one, I believe I was in the third grade. So pretty much, most of my life until you know he retired or stopped making films and then he passed away in 2010 and um, i'm just curious just before we start talking about your dad's work and you know and being involved in those films yourself what is one of the films that you like when you were growing up or as an adult that you would like recommend to people you know i knew we all like as film lovers love different films would be a particular film you would recommend for somebody that does not involve your dad so i love so i one of my favorite movies is actually big fish Mm. do you know that do you know that movie yes the the tim burton one yeah the tim burton one and i like um I kind of watch a lot of movies, but they're kind of classic. I like Almost Famous. I like kind of a lot of weird movies. I don't like scary movies, really, and I don't watch scary movies, as crazy as that sounds, because my dad liked to kind of test everything out. On Like, he would scare me. My dad liked to scare me. That was his, his I think he would test his reactions, like, you know, I was his sample audience or whatever. So uh, he kept, like, my whole life I was growing up, I was fearful. <laughs> so I had to get rid of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons, he would tell spooky stories and everything, you know. So I had to cut out all the spooky stories. I don't do spooky stories anymore. I have had, uh, I do I have had encounters, like supernatural encounters and stuff. I've had, I've lived in, I just, I had an encounter not too long ago, actually at an old hotel that I was staying at. So, so I get spooked out on my own, but that doesn't actually scare me anymore either. But 
it is a little spookier. But anyway, I don't watch those scary movies anymore. I, there's parts of Dreaded Sundown that I've never watched the whole thing. Like, I cover my eyes and stuff. Yeah, and your dad was so, able to do all these films with um, using very little money, but the creativity behind him is just amazing. So he wore a lot of hats. And if you ever look at the credits of his movies, now he'll change up the names. Uh, he'll call himself Chuck Bryant or something, but that's my dad. So he was, you know, he played spark plug. He was always writing in a part for himself. Whatever. So he wore a lot of hats. That was one of the ways that he did it. Now um, people can make movies literally with their iPhone. I just saw the new iPhone commercial, and they, they're calling it like, you know, that you can have your own little production company. But my dad was doing that way before anybody else. So he would, uh, with his experience as an ad person, whatever, it started out, he started out actually in Monroe, El Dorado, Arkansas. So Monroe, Louisiana, El Dorado, there was a NBC affiliate there. And that's where he starts out right after high school. And he works his way up. He goes to... All, they send him all over. He goes to Beaumont, Texas. He goes he goes to a lot of different stations. And he's working his way up. He starts directing the news. Uh, he's got his own little television show. He's got his own kitty show, kind of a, where he does interviews. There's pictures before I was actually even born where he's got the guys from Bonanza on. Maybe I'd just been born anyway, but it's Lauren, you know, Lauren Green and mm-hmm. Michael Landon and Dan Blocker, who was from Arkansas. So he had his little television shows go too, and he just kept working his way up. And then he moves to Texture Can and he's got an ad agency and he starts doing these commercials. And he would use, like, my mom, my mother would model for him, or my brother. I was in some of his ads. He did the big uh, department store in town, Bennett Smith. And so he would always create, like, this whole Christmas, you know, thing when it was still hot outside. I thought that was the most, you know, and he would have all these gifts all wrapped up. And, of course, they'd be empty, you know. But for a little kid, that was kind of, it was a little bit magical. And then. He was a character called Mayor Chuckles, mm-hmm. and he had a, a little TV show called The Laugh-A-Lot Club. So when I first started to school, he was a celebrity with this elementary set, you know, because they would watch him. He was on television from, like, Monday through Friday. He had this little television show. So he was very popular. So even before he made movies, he was kind of a star in his little town, you know. And, so he he was a character for sure. And what was that like for you growing up with um, your dad being so popular? You know, for you, how did that affect you in school and outside of school? Well, so as you can imagine, that it's it's a very unique perspective. And I used to wonder, like, I used to think this is a really thankless job being the daughter, you know, but now I'm so thankful because I know that I was there to watch everything and I have kind of a photographic, you know, memory. So I remember 
like I remember what people had on. I remember what they said, you know, where they were standing. And so now looking back, you know, I mean, I was there when Dick Morrow first flew in to do the evictors and he was staying. My dad had a big house and he had built a guest house with individual suites and sauna and all this stuff. So he would have his actors and stuff. This is, you know, of course, a long time ago, 77 or whatever. And they didn't have hotels. They didn't have the casinos, the nice places, you know, you could have put somebody. So he he did this whole place for his actors. And they would, so he, just Vic Marley would just come in. And my dad was like, oh, I'm, he was doing something. He said, I can't get, go down and talk to him till I can get down there, you know. And so... Um, I did. I walked in. So my dad had a theater. He built his own theater, movie theater inside the house, and it was a full screen, you know. So that was different. Just that whole thing alone was different. And he had his own boards. He would do all his mixing. He would do his editing, you know. Mm-hmm. He had like so. Uh, I remember, being, you know, I was there, and that was my favorite part. Is I would go with him to the editing room and stuff, and they had those big Motorola's and stuff, and they would, you know, they would operate those. It was, you know, you used your feet, and they'd fly through. And uh, it's interesting because when my my dad does the movie, he he gets the move. He convinces Mr. Ledwell, who is a wealthy business owner in Texarkana. He convinces him to put up, I think it was $35,000, which was kind of a lot back then. But uh, he pitched it as a regional film. And he had actually gone to a lot of other people prior to Mr. Ledwell, but he convinces Mr. Ledwell to let him do it. And so he ends up running out of money on his like third day of filming. And it was due to the film. He was using technoscope film, which was different. So he had to go back to Mr. Webel and he said, you know, you're going to lose that other 35000 unless you put another, you know, he had to put more in. And so uh, he said otherwise, you know, I mean, otherwise he was going to lose the other money. Yep. So uh, anyway, the guy who became my dad's CFO and was Ledwell CFO at that time said the first time he ever saw my dad, Buddy Ledwell was pointing at him saying, follow that guy. He's costing me way too much money. So, But they didn't expect it to really make any money, you know. Yeah. I mean, how do you make the money back? I mean, so, but of course it did. And it was, uh, it was a huge blockbuster. It was the ninth highest grossing film of 1972. And that is against the Godfather and Cabaret, the Poseidon Adventure, Deliverance, and actually, I think Deep Throat. I think Deep Throat came in number eight. So uh, it was a pioneering year for film. You know, uh, back then the tickets were two dollars a piece. You know, so to gross twenty-five million dollars. You know, you sold a lot of tickets. So uh, at the beginning, though, he did not. Mr. Redwell was very wealthy. 
so he was able to uh, help my dad. So they first started with what they called four walling, meaning that you rent the theater, you pay everything, and then you take the bank, you know, whatever. Every, so, so you're literally paying for everything. I remember being uh, at different theaters where they they would sometimes send in people with little clickers and they would click off the tick, you know, everybody coming in there and check it against the box office. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, so at the very beginning, he was, so he four walls in the beginning and he sells out. I don't know if you know this part, but people camped, you know, in line. And that was unusual for films back then. But um, they, you know, they would take their lunch to get the tickets. And so it, it sold out for weeks. Uh, about two weeks into it, I believe, he calls and he gets, they had had a defective print. Uh, so he calls and he gets that defective print sent to him. And then he puts that in Shreveport and he, he four walls out the strand. Now let me go back to, so when he premieres in Texarkana, he premieres at, called the Paramount. And this is the legend of Boggy Creek, correct? Yep, Boggy Creek. So he premieres there at, at, at the, it was called the Paramount, but the, it had been in such repair because it had been built like early in like the, during Bodville. And it had closed actually. But Texarkana only had two theaters, and the other one was the kind of fancy new Oakland, and it was booked. It, I think it was playing Godfather then. So my dad convinces them to uh, let him rent the Paramount, open it up. He said, we'll clean it. And so he got, like, I remember cleaning the theater. It, you know, it was one of those with the Coca-Cola that was so thick that your feet stuck to the bottom, you know? Yep. So we cleaned it up and then, uh, I mean, it was magical. It was like, it was, it was literally a phenomena. You know I mean? It, it threw off a lot of copycat movies and I mean, it, to this day, it's kind of, uh, people say, oh yes, I remember that movie, you know? So it's, it's a special kind of film. It was just, it's, it, it was just kind of a magical thing, I think. It hit at the right time, and I remember seeing it as a boy when it was on TV a couple times, you know, and um, and just enjoying it. So I never got to see it in the theater experience, but you have painstakingly restored the movie so it can now be seen the way it was meant to be seen, correct? Yeah, so that's exciting. So if you, so nobody has really seen the film correctly in almost, well, since 1975. So when Mr. Ledwell and my father end up breaking up in 75 and they go their their separate ways and Mr. Ledwell takes Boggy Creek and Bootleggers and my father goes with Winterhawk, his third film. So all these years on television, everything has been what they call pan and scan copy, meaning that they took the camera and they just kind of panned and scanned along with the action. So you are only getting a little snapshot of what was actually on the screen. So when the film was released, originally it was critically acclaimed as well as being popular with the audience. 
uh, the critics said that the cinematography was just, you know, stunning, breathtaking, whatever they want to call it. You know, there's the, the aerial scenes. That's way before drones, any of that kind of stuff. My dad hired a crop duster, you know, but he, you know, there's like stories about how he's telling the, the pilot who's still alive uh, to get closer, get lower, lower, lower. <laughs> kept telling him, and he's hanging out of the he's hanging out of the plane, you know. But anyway, so he he wore all those hats, and then of course it becomes this blockbuster. And uh, one of the things, though, let me tell you this: it's so fun. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. Is my dad ends up so he goes he shoots it in this technoscope, which is the wide angle. Uh, it's owned by Technicolor, but not very often used. It was used before by George Lucas in American Graffiti. And I think that just like there's not, if you look it up, you know, Technoscope and American Film, they didn't do it very much. It was made for the spaghetti western. And my dad loved that whole widescreen kind of, you know, where you feel like you're part of the picture. So Mm -hmm. that was super that was super important to him when he shot the film. And one of the things that made it so popular is because he really concentrated on emerging you into the screen. Like, you know, I mean, his, he loved John Ford and, you know, these big, you know, epic kind of things. It's a wide screen, you know, just going across. And he, that, that was his goal. So, the rest of it, like he ends up hiring like five high school guys, Smokey, I mean, uh, Travis Crabtree being one of them. And they literally go out with a flat bottom boat with this gigantic camera and uh, that they had borrowed from Gordon Eastman. I don't know if you know who Gordon Eastman is, but he was a documentary filmmaker and did a lot of stuff for Disney. And they go out there and they shoot it. And, and I'm going to say this too. He was very inspired by the Wild Kingdom, like um, Mutual of Omaha. Mm-hmm. What was his name? I'm oh, drawing a blank. I'm trying to remember his name too. But it... yeah, I'll think of it in just a second. But so yes, he we used to watch it every single Sunday. And so when you see that Disney influence, so after he gets it in the can, so to speak, he goes to Los Angeles and he meets Jaime Mendoza Nava who, in addition to the soundtrack, writing the soundtrack, is also, he put together this production, post-production house, and he and Tom Boutrous, who was the editor, and others had all been with Disney. And Disney had actually laid them off. And so they formed their own company, you know, post-production. So, so my dad, when he when he gets there with this beautiful film that he shot um, and he hands it over to these former Disney guys, they knew exactly what to do with it, you know? So when you hear that, with the music and stuff, those were all, the guy, Jaime Mendoza Nava, actually worked for Mickey Mouse Club, Zorro. He, he did the, uh, the, the music for the moon landing for CBS and Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. So he was 
pretty, you know, he was pretty established. And then, so I was going to tell you this, this is one of my favorite parts. It, so the poster, he introduces my dad to Ralph McQuarrie. And Ralph had worked for NASA and Boeing. I don't know why they thought that that would be a good fit for Bigfoot, but they did. And so uh, they introduced him, and he does the movie poster, which, you know, it's that movie poster and word of mouth in the beginning that created the whole phenomenon around the film and made it the blockbuster that it was. Because uh, my dad really didn't have that much. He did some radio Later on, when he when he got a distributor, they started doing radio advertising and a little bit of television. But uh, mostly in those beginning days, it was that poster and people saying, oh, my God, did you see this movie? You know, you got to see this movie. So that's kind of what drove it in the beginning. And then in 75, though, that artist, Ralph McCleary, goes to work for George Lucas and literally creates everything Star Wars, those first three films. He does the 21 storyboards uh, that Lucas sends to 20th Century Fox. You know, Lucas had been turned down by all the other uh, studios in Hollywood, and Fox was his last chance. So he hires uh, McQuarrie. I've read on the spot that McQuarrie had brought some of the movie posters he'd done. So that was in 75. So he would have already done, uh, he also did, he did five posters for my dad. And he also did, um, they called it back then the Phantom, the town that dreaded Sundown. And they say that there are correlations between Darth Vader and the Phantom Killer. And it they, they say that it's Ralph McQuarrie that suggested to Lucas to use the scuba apparatus to change his breathing and his voice. And if you remember that, if you've seen Dread Sundown, the mask and the breathing are a huge part of the terror. Yes, they are. And um, Merlin Perkins. Yes, Marlon Perkins. Was mutual of Omaha, yep. Wild Kingdom. Yep, that's, that's, yep, that's it. Yep. So if you, once you know that, another reference which, I really haven't talked about it too much, and I've never heard anybody else talk about. But um, is the references, especially in the Ford scene, to Scooby Doo? Actually, if you think about it, and you look at the characters, they look like you know the characters from Scooby Doo. And that my dad never said that, and that was a cartoon. But being Mayor Chuckles before with the Laugh a Lot Club, my dad showed cartoons on his television, mostly like Papa and some others, but Roadrunner, I think, was one. But, but he was very familiar with. So even if he did it subliminally, if you watch that Ford scene and think about a Scooby-Doo episode, you will totally get it. <laughs> oh, I, I love Scooby-Doo, and now I'm, I'm looking forward to rewatching that scene, thinking about it as like Fred, Daphne, Velma, and Scooby, you yeah. know, and, 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 and trying to picture yeah. that being there. Yeah, because like, uh, so Bobby Ford is uh, is shaggy, and you know I think Scooby is Corky, you know, and of course uh, Daphne is Bunny D, that you know Sue Ford, whatever. So yeah, when you look at it, it's funny because there's even 
the way that he shot a couple of the things, I can just, you know, I could, in my mind, I turned it into a cartoon, you know. So that was another, so that was the reason I think, you know, and it, here's the thing it was a G rated film, and it doesn't really show you anything. Like you, you don't, there's no violence really. The guys are saying, shoot them, shoot them into the dark, you know, at the end, but. It's really not, you know, it's not a violent film. There's no passing. Herb Jones, you know, rolls up his cigarette. But uh, it, other than that, it's, you know, so back then it was, so it was a G. And so a lot of people saw it when they were like seven, eight. They write, people write to me every day and they say, oh, they know exactly how old they were when they saw it, where they saw it, you know, and how it affected them, you know. Um, but it, it spurred a lot of interest in Bigfoot. Oh, it did. And um, I, I remember reading after seeing the movie, going and getting, you go back to school and you go to the school library, you go to the public library and you're looking for books on Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah. It was, I remember, I wish I could find the copy, but at one time it was in that kind of, um, not the weekly reader, but there was one that we used to get at school back then, and it gave me kind of news, and it talked about that. It was, so, you know, when you asked me how was it to have a dad, it was such a unique, you know, I always knew that it was, that I was blessed, you know, like, I knew that that wasn't normal, and I got to do things that other people didn't get to do, and so I was always, uh, you know, and my mother was real big about it too it's like you know she didn't want us my mother came from well my mom and dad both came from very humble beginnings but Bobby Creek made my dad a, you know a multi-millionaire so uh you know I mean it's it was just and he was he was a trip too my dad liked to spend money you know <laughs> my mother used to get really upset with him you know because he would go off and he would just go buy a car, a new car, and come home, you know, and say, oh, surprise. And my mother would say, she would literally say, do not leave and go, and you know. But he liked, he, of course, he was just buying it for himself. But, you know, I mean, he liked cars. There were certain things that he, you know, he would like. And he liked technology. He always liked his cameras and, you know, but he was a trip for sure. Yeah, I think it's like, because they're both obviously from the Depression era, and it's affects, when you go through that time period, everybody is affected so differently. Some people are always going to be, I guess like your mom was, thinking frugality, you know, you got to be, you got to be cost conscious, and other people are like, ah, I finally got money, we can finally get certain things that I've always wanted, and I think it still applies Uh, to people today. Well, and Mr. Mr. Houck headed, you know, the distributors. My dad gets Mr. Houck, you know, makes my dad an offer. He can't refuse kind of a thing. And he has his own airplane. So my dad had that at his kind of, you know, fingertips too. They used to fly the film in and out so that they could have it, you know, so they could watch the dailies and make sure that everything was going right. So I used to have friends that would, you know, they could catch a ride if it was going one way or the other. Or if I would, you know what I'm saying? It was just, so it was just, they used an airplane like a courier service. You know? Yep. It was, it was just a different kind of way of life. Uh, he was, 
you know, my dad did not like Hollywood, though. He did not. He thought that Hollywood had a bad attitude, and just, he just didn't like it. And he said that he got he was treated better if he lived, at, you know, in Arkansas or Louisiana, wherever, and then would just come into town. He said that they treated him better than if he lived there all the time. So he would, that's what he would do. He would just come in for the two weeks or whatever. Sometimes it would take longer, but usually it didn't take too long for him to do his post-production work. Uh, it's a whole different thing now. You know, we have the computers. I was just talking to a guy about some work that I'm, this stuff that I'm working on. He was saying that we can literally send iPhones with a tripod and a light and they, you know, you do it postage paid and then there's this software and you just do it through there and it's just amazing. You don't even have to be in the same, you know, you don't have to be in the same building or, you know, a long time ago it was just different. The cameras were gigantic and everything cost a fortune mm-hmm. and now you can go to your, you know, phone store and get a 4K camera. Yeah, I interviewed um two filmmakers from the United Kingdom um, that did a film in, um because of the COVID going on, they couldn't get their normal cameras. They couldn't get their crew. And they decided to do a film, just the two of them using only the iPhone that actually has, you know, got a theatrical release. And um, recently, so it is, yeah, it is out there and it's possible, but I still think being with each other as an actor and and as a crew, I think adds so much to the film when it's not there, you can notice it. Yeah, I think it would be hard to do it the other way. I'm working on some documentary kind of stuff, so it's kind of a different, you know, you don't have to have the people right there. But, no, I I think it's important that you have your interactions. But, now, again, sometimes you don't have to do that. Uh, You know, my daughter just, my daughter's gone in, two of my daughters have gone into film, and, uh, you know, sometimes they don't even, she, she just did a film with Barbara Eden and didn't, shoot anything with Barbara Eden. Now, she was just the production designer and stuff like that, but you know, they, uh, and Denise Richards was in the film, and I don't think that they had any scenes together. So, it's amazing how you can be in the same movie and whatever, and then never actually shoot together, but you know, that's how it is. My dad would schedule people in the court, you know, sometimes it would be interacting in the film, but they actually never meet each other. Yep. Because, so, because I guess the filming schedules of people's, uh, especially doing other projects, trying to get everything to work together and get them in there during the time you're doing the shoot. Sometimes you can't get people to match up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, the whole thing is an interesting process. I, I, when I decided to restore the film and, you know, I went to the George Eastman Museum and we had it done there. And then I went to Audio Mechanics in uh, Los Angeles, actually, and I think they're in Burbank. So they did all the sound restoration because I knew that the sound was very important, just as important as the film, uh, and that technoscope ratio being restored. So to do this, I, I couldn't hear the movie. All those years in bootleg, I could not hear. I don't know if it, I went to too many rock concerts or what, but I have a feeling like a lot of my peers can't hear that well either. <laughs> you know, and so it was very difficult. It was like, I, you can't even hear what they're saying, you know, and I knew what they were saying. 
so that was always so frustrating for me. And I remember my dad, as a little girl, my dad would lay on the on the floor and he would have his headphones on and he had these big, like, reel-to-reels with sound on them. And it would have the, like, raindrops and thunder and it would have people walking through the leaves or it would have, you know, whatever. So he would listen to the trains, you know. So he would listen to those soundtracks, and I remember thinking, that is so cool that they have that like that, you know? <laughs> How handy, you know? So uh, sound was important to him when he when the, the scream in the film is the actual, the first vocalization ever recorded of that creature. That's actually, they captured that out in, you know, near Boggy Creek. So, you know, that was the... The musical score is the first uh, musical score ever written for a docu- full-length documentary like that. And I don't know this if you know this, but Boggy Creek is the first docudrama. It was released actually as a documentary because they didn't have docudramas back then. Yep. <laughs> it's the one that it's the film that format you know uh, that pioneers that format. So. Uh, when we went back to Texarkana, I decided that, so in all these years, you know, Boggy Creek kind of became a classic through the bootleg, which is kind of uh, goes to the strength, I think, of the story, you know, because that's what you were getting there. You were getting the basic story. You didn't get much of a picture and you didn't get a lot of sound. So when, uh, in these years since the, uh, Paramount Theater, where he had originally premiered, and which also uh, plays into the ending of Dreaded Sundown. If you've ever seen Dreaded Sundown, you've seen the Paramount Theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, by this time, it has about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Ross Perot is also from Texarkana, the Billionaire Ross Crow, Texas billionaire, yes. was originally from Texas, Canada. So his family, uh, you know, set up a fund, whatever, and they restored that theater. So it's back to its original grandeur. It is so pretty. And uh, so to go back there, so we went back in 2018 with the remastered and restored prints. And I four-walled it because I thought, no, I should four-wall, you know, at least, you know, because that's kind of a classic thing to do. Anyway, it was, uh, a lot of people came in from all over the country. It was great fun. It turned out way better than I even thought it was going to be. And uh, I think that, so, and, and I've been working on a little bit of distribution. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to do something with Fathom to get it in all the theaters across the country. Mm, that would be sweet. Wouldn't that be fun? So, I've had a conversation with them already, and they said that they definitely, it's something, you know, and next year will be the 50th anniversary. So, we're getting super close. So, I'm hoping to get it back in the theaters. Um. You know, the DVD, Blu-ray people are totally different than the theater people. And sometimes it overlaps. But there, you know, there are some people that only want to watch it at home. And then there's others that just, they want to go see it at the movie theater. So we've played about two dozen shows. And they've all either been, you know, uh, 
what do they call it, um, full, whatever, or sold out. So. Sell, sold out, yeah. Yeah, and then there's another time that it's full, not full house, but. Um, Standing room I'll only? No, but it's like that. I'll think of it in just a second, what they call it. But anyway, so yeah, it's right at the. And you know, so here's the thing it's like I have it, I don't really have a, somebody like Mr. Ledwell behind me. I just have the reputation of the film and the fact that nobody's seen it correctly in almost 50 years. So um, it's taken me longer, you know, and I've, I'm super careful. Um, somebody told me early on that they said, do you know what a unique position you're in, that you own and control a classic film like this? And they said that that's reserved for like names like Disney and uh, Turner and Warner. You know, he said it's that's not an individual. And so um, I started thinking about that, and it's true, you know. And so that's made me even more cautious, you know, on like how I've done it. And in 2018, I removed all of the poor copies from the internet and it was everywhere okay it was I, I mean I removed millions and millions and millions of views um just from YouTube alone and then it was on you name it the platform it was up there but it was all this poor quality mm-hmm. you know pan and scan that was unauthorized um so my goal has always been to replace it all of those places I want it to be you know available to people that want to see it so my goal is to put it back but put this beautiful print you know back the way that it was meant to be seen and you know because it really is a treasure and you can see the creature now which you couldn't in the you couldn't really see him in the bootleg but he's there now and um, so it's kind of fun to you know that my copy actually has the monster in it you know it's still kind of obscured because my dad that was kind of the brilliance of it my dad didn't have the money for a costume so he you know would just show it off in the shadows grunting and you know whatever so that's all back so it's it's been uh, such fun to do it as well because the boggy creek fans are very they're very kind um, and it's kind of a, even though it's a scary movie and people say that how much it scared them, they also say it comforts them, believe it or not, and that it's kind of like a, it's just like an old favorite, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's definitely high on like the nostalgia, you know, when you watch it, especially now, like, I can't tell you how many times it's brought tears to my eyes and people write to me and they say that same thing because it just, it's not just what you're seeing on film. It's all those feelings. Like you're almost transported back to when you were a kid and you're watching it there and you, you know, it's, you know, that feeling when you see something and it's so familiar and it takes you back instantly. Mm -hmm. So with the music, you know, music has that power as well. So, no, to give people an idea of how much this film is acclaimed, I think you were telling me before we started recording, it's um, going to be having an honor given to it later this year in mid-December. 
It is. Yes, I'm super excited. I was just told that it has been nominated for the National Film Registry, which um, nominate is kind of a, a little bit of a misnomer, I think. I think that means that they nominate, and I'm supposed to turn over the good assets so that it can be preserved. But 25 films a year are named, and so uh, this year in December, I'm told that Boggy Creek is one of those 25. I'm very excited. It's supposed to be for um, cultural, aesthetic, and maybe technical. I can't remember all the criteria, but it's like three criteria, you know. And there's uh, this will all be uh, in the 825 films. So right now there are 800, and then then there'll be another 25. So it's quite an honor, you know, when you think of all the films that have been made. Yeah, because you're talking about um, less than a thousand films are in it, and this is one of the films that's going to be there. So, I mean, yeah, it, that's an elite group in itself, which just shows that your dad was able to literally knock one out of the park with this film. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it people say that they tell me that there's that the Legend of Mighty Creek is the only film like they can't think of any other film before or after that is like it it's it's very unique to this day that's the reason like um i think that you know people ask me about remakes or uh or sequels and you know so a remake would be pretty hard to do i think that would be super hard to do so i think that a video game would be super fun don't you think that that would be fun well, that would be interesting because you get you, you if you put yourself in that area and have to go through that would be nice. I think, I think yeah, yeah, the video an immersive video game would be cool. Wouldn't that be fun? You could be Travis in the canoe. You could have snakes and alligators, and then the felt monster would be the most elusive, of course. So I asked Travis. I said, "Did you ever see it?" Well, I asked him. I said, "How did my dad find your dad?" Because you know his dad was smoky. And he said, because it had been in the newspaper, his brother Lynn had had an encounter. But Lynn didn't want his story used, and he didn't want his name used. So Smokey acted as a guide, and then they used Travis to just kind of, you know, just kind of tell the story. But Travis said that he had never seen it, but he told me that uh, the day that all the hunters are there with the dogs, you know, that, that day that they were shooting the hunters and the dogs, that the creature was up in front of them for quite a distance, that uh, that he stayed in front of them, but he said that he they heard it that day. He heard it that day. So that was kind of an interesting thing. I didn't know that part. That's pretty amazing, you know, that, you know, I got, you know, you wanted to see what it was all about. Yeah, and those dogs were afraid. They didn't want to track that, whatever it was. They were turning back. They couldn't get them to hunt i don't blame so, the dogs you know that, that's that, you know something dogs probably thinking yeah you want me to go that way no i don't think so <laughs> yeah i'm not doing that and they and it really you know i mean in the south i don't know that it may be this in other parts of the country too but they really do have great pride in their hunting dogs you know and their skills as a you know tracking and all that stuff so and um, there's my dad would always say that he didn't know what it was. He thought that it was an animal, I think, of some kind, probably a primate 
when they're discussing that in the film, you know, and they've got the orangutan swinging and stuff. That's my dad's voice where he says, well, could it be an orangutan? And it's Earl Smith as well. Earl wrote the movie with my dad after Smokey took them down to introduce them to people in the bottoms and stuff. And uh, Travis told me that he just remembers Earl just writing like so fast as the people would, you know, if they were telling their story, Earl was just writing it down. So when the people say, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't like my hair and those Texas boys were going to, that's what they were really talking about. And when the girl says, do y'all want a Coke? That's really what she said, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, they were just telling them what had happened and Earl's writing it down. Later on, I don't know, this is kind of a little bit of trivia, but later on my father and Earl write the uh, original story by is their credit for sudden impact. And my dad's credited with uh, the, the Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. Did you know that? Yeah, I read that. And I was going to ask you about that. Cause you know, it's, um, cause I think something about his dad used to say something similar to that. Yeah, it was, yep. It was a threat that was kind of like a saying down in that area, El Dorado, Hanson, you know, that, so, and my grandfather, that, so there were three boys, and that was his threat to them, to get them to, to mow the lawn, is what it was. If you, you know, told them that if they did not have that lawn mowed by the time that he got home, you know, go ahead and make my day. So, he, that was a threat. <laughs> my grandfather was kind of nice, too. It was, anyway, that's a whole different story. But later on, when we were kind of talking about my dad would buy his parents, like he bought them a car. He'd buy my grandmother a big television, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he loved, loved, loved doing that. And also when, so if he needed, later on as he went through, if he needed to shoot in somebody's house, let's say, he would offer them a great deal of money. And then he'd say, I'll get you a big screen TV, da, da, da. And like, he'd send somebody to the whatever and get them a big, and he said, by the time, you won't even know that we're here and you'll have this big television all hooked up and we're gone. And you can just, you know, so he was always doing stuff like that. Which I think is good because if you're going to be using the same areas with other people's houses, possibly in the future, you want everybody to have good word of mouth saying, Oh, he'll take care of you. You'll be happy. You know? And yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he was, my dad was funny too. He had a really, you can, I mean, I don't know how funny the spark plug is in dreaded sundown, but that he had to put some comic relief in there because of the subject matter. And it was so, that was so taboo. When he did that, um, you know, you didn't really do that in regular movies. I mean, I think there were a couple, but not in the movie that was going to be playing in that first run theater. You know, it was more slasher grindhouse stuff that you would see that at. But yeah. uh, anyway, he he liked to. Well, he always had to be in control. He he was he was funny when he passed away. I had a a journalist, whatever, somebody called me, a writer called me and asked me for a quote. And I was just kind of stunned, you know, I mean, he had just passed away and I wasn't expecting that. But I, I was like, well, he's funny. That was, he was really funny. And the guy said, 
you know, he must have really been, because that is the most consistent quote I have gotten from everybody that I talked to said that he was funny. So he was, he was, uh, he could really tell a story. He loved to tell stories all the way back from when he was a kid in school. You know, people tell me that he, he told stories. He made up stories. He, uh, and he would keep them entertained. He would give them, even later on when he was trying to scare me to death, he would do sound effects. He always, you know, verbally, he'd be telling the story or he'd kind of act it out. When he'd be talking about the phantom killer in Dreaded Sundown, he would breathe real hard and he'd use his, you know, hand to show how the cloth was going in and out, you know. He was very dramatic like that. No. So, and used to be in, used to be in the, the boss, you know, he was the boss. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, his vision was going out there. And with The Town of Dread Sundown, he had some well-known actors that were in it, like Andrew Prine, Ben Johnson, yeah. and Dawn Wells. Did you get to yeah. interact with any of them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, Dawn just passed away. Yes, sadly. From COVID, actually, like in the last six months or so. So, uh, yeah, I did. I got to interact with most of them. Andy was, you know, Andy's Andy. So my dad was always kind of uh, leery of, like, you know, uh, anyway. So, yeah, I, I did uh, I did the, uh, not sacred. I worked on sacred ground, too, but I did uh, Hawkins. That was with Peter Fonda was in that one. So that was kind of fun. And... That was, you know, I was older then. But, uh, Jacqueline Smith, I'm trying to think of some of the actors and actresses. Jacqueline Smith, that was her first film. And she was working as a Brett girl modeling. And it's the year before she joins Charlie's Angels in Bootleggers. So he... He worked with a lot of character actors, and then he had his favorites, you know, and he used them over and over again. Jack Elam. And- oh, I love Jack Elam, and I know I was going to bring him up because he's in a number of your dad's films, as you said, and, and I've always enjoyed yeah. his acting. Yeah, he loved, loved, loved Jack. And uh, Jimmy Clem, you know, was in a lot of his movies, and Jimmy Clem was a Texarkana businessman, so that was kind of interesting how that whole thing happened. Uh, Jimmy was owned cattle, and then he owned like it used to be. So he had Clem sausage, you know. That used to be an advertiser on my dad's kitty show, Roman bread and uh, and Clem sausage. Anyway, so Jimmy though, my dad would write parts for these people. And he knew exactly who he wanted to play, whatever. And most of the time they did, you know, they would play. He had he had trouble with his lead leading men a lot of times, you know, so you don't see the same one over and over. Um, he would use different ones. He got into it with his lead, because he didn't like vanity, mm-hmm. uh, even with his actresses. If you acted like a prima donna or any of that kind of stuff, he really didn't have too much time for that. Now, you know, and and it's interesting because people like Ben Johnson and stuff never acted prima donna, but there were some, you know. So, so what? So with Jack Elam, what are some memories that you had with um, 
Mr. Elam, you know, in the multiple films he was in. you have any stories do you want to share with him? Yes, so, so Jack was absolutely lovely. He had impeccable manners. He had been married for, I don't know, 25 years or some long time for Hollywood standards. And he had a daughter, Jackie. And they traveled with him. They were always on set with him. And just really, really gracious. Jack was a big gambler, though. So every single night, they would have a poker game. My dad did not play. My dad wasn't a gambler but or a card player. But uh, Jack played cards every night. So And usually he won. Uh, I have an uncle who worked. It was my mother's little brother, actually. But he worked on a lot of the films with my dad. And uh, anyway, he didn't get paid as much as Jack, you know. And one night, uh, the next day, he was all upset, and he told my, you know, he had lost. He had played with them, and he had lost. And my dad said, you don't know better than to play against those guys. <laughs> you don't get in there. That's not, you know. So, you know, he was pretty good, I think, it was, you know. But I remember I had to take, after Sacred Ground, I had to take, uh, I drove the, I was like a co-pilot on driving this wardrobe trailer back to Los Angeles. And we had to go up and Jack had some wardrobe up there and he lived up in Santa Barbara. So I had to drive up there and pick it up from him. So anyway, he made lunch for me and it was so beautiful. It was, well, his, you know, his wife did, but we sat outside in Santa Barbara and he had this unbelievable view. And it was just, uh, just always just wonderful stories about Jack. He was always, like I said, very professional as well. Oh yeah, because I, I enjoy. Like I said, there's so many films that he's in, and he just always augments them. He, he's almost always a supporting character. You know, I always think of um, support your local sheriff, support your local gunfighter. You know, the Norseman. Okay. I mean, it's just he brings comedy, but he can also bring the bad guy part, like in. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to oh, think yeah. of the Western, the Western one he was in that where he it was by yeah. Sergio Leone, where he played the, he's only in it for the beginning, but he plays the bad guy. Yeah, he played, that's my dad loved him as a bad guy with the eye, and he could do that wild eye, just, to, you know, like he would do his head and then look up. That was kind of part of his thing, you know, but he was very, he was old school kind of Hollywood, you know, you just didn't have much trouble out of him. And I assume my ben, dad had, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, Ben Johnson was the same way, very professional. And my dad just almost worshipped those guys. Because those guys, he had grown up watching on the big screen, you know? Yep, and you it actually was, had, we were headed right where I was about to say. I was about to go to Ben Johnson. It was, it was almost like we were thinking alike. <laughs> so he actually wrote that part for John Wayne, of course. And John Wayne was sick at the time and there's a letter in my father's estate where he writes to my dad and says that he's seen my dad's movies and that he would love to work with him but whatever but he was suffering from ill health or whatever and so that was right before he died um so my dad i'm trying to think is that the first one ben's in that you know ben johnson had been in dreaded sundown yep that was the first one that he was in for, for my dad so uh, that's when he decided to do that. And then that's with Lana Wood, too, uh, Gray Eagle. And Alex Cord, who just passed away recently. 
you remember Alex Cord? Yes, I do. It's 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 been it. It's one of those things. It's always sad. Like every year, we're always losing um, people that we all grew up watching and enjoying. And it's, it's yeah. a, but it's part of life, sadly. But it's just it doesn't make it any easier. Yeah, it really it it, it kind of like marks time, doesn't it? Just it's like wow, it's that's the end of an era, kind of. When that's how I felt when Don Wells passed away. I just it really touched me because we used to see Don. Don did a lot of regional theater when she wasn't doing movies. And so she would come through Dallas or whatever. And my mother adored her just as much as my dad did. So my mom would take us to see her shows. And um, we would have, back then, I guess they still have them, but you would go and you would watch a play or whatever and you'd have dinner, these dinner shows. So we did that a lot of times. And then we would see her afterwards. And she, I saw her about six years ago, I'm going to say, she was in Boston, and I went over to see her. And she told me some kind of neat things. She told me that my dad was very pioneering in giving her the role as Clayanna in Winterhawk, and that uh, she got to narrate the film. And she said very few films were narrated by women. And so she said it enabled her to get two paychecks, you know, one as the narrator and one as an actress. So she said that it was a great help to her. And that uh, she said she recalled that as the most favorite working experience of her life, working on Winterhawk. So that was kind of an honor, you know. Oh, it is. And I got to meet and, Dawn Wells a few years ago, um, luckily at a convention, and it was my son, my my older son was with me, Ben, and they had a conversation for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And it was almost like an aunt talking to a nephew the whole time. Like what's going on in your life and that kind of stuff. It was just a great watching those two. We have that interaction. Yeah. She was very, uh, she's very kind and very generous and very empathetic. I think my brother and Don had a very close relationship. You know, my brother played the little boy. He's the little blonde that runs across the field at the beginning of Boggy Creek. And he also is in, he's in all my dad's movies. Uh, but he is in Winterhawk as Don's little brother. So they were on a, in a lot of scenes, of course, together. So, and that was with, uh, Winterhawk was played by Michael Dante. If you remember, do you remember Michael Dante? Yes, I do. Michael Stoll- yeah, Michael's still alive, actually. I saw him, well, it's probably been 20 years now, but, <laughs> you know, you see these people and you think, oh, that wasn't that long ago. And then you start thinking, it was like, oh, that was a little bit ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, time, time has a way of always moving forward. And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, oh, that was a while. It, it, especially when you <laughs> when you haven't seen friends in a certain period of time and you go and see them and then you see their kids. And that's when you really notice it when yeah. last time you saw the child was four and now they're like uh, 16, you're like, what? <laughs> so my I married a, a Yankee and moved like north, and so I got a, I was away from the whole business for a long time, and then I, I we had five children, and I ended up like homeschooling those kids, and you know we kind of my husband's an inventor, and kind of gave uh, my. David actually is the inventor of the Czechs hockey game. If you've ever seen the bubble top hockey game, mm-hmm. that so that was his one of his first commercial inventions. 
but I didn't really have too much to do with the movies, and I I never watched it because it was it was really poor quality, and I couldn't hear it. Like I said, so I just didn't watch it, and I didn't really bring it up to my kids too much. My kids would watch Boggy Creek Two: The Legend Continues because that would be on. I don't know, but they would watch it somewhere because they used to, they loved that one, but they never really even talked about the Legend of Boggy Creek too much. But anyway, as time went on, um, I didn't even know, really, I mean, I knew Ralph McQuarrie, okay, and I, and I knew that my father adored him, and I knew that he had great respect for him and all that stuff, but I did not know that Ralph McQuarrie was the creator of everything, the look of Star Wars, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm reading, like, oh, the Chewbacca. And it's like, oh, of course, you know, Chewbacca. And they, you know, I had read that to me it said that Ralph said that, you know, everything subconsciously probably comes out. But uh, Lucas wanted Chewbacca to be like he envisioned him as a lemur or as his dog. He had an Alaskan Malian mute. Is that how you say it? Anyway, so... That's how he envisioned Chewbacca. And I see the lemur sometimes in the neck, the way that Chewbacca turns or whatever. And I also see the companionship, loyalty of, you know, your dog, you know, your companion dog. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, I see Bigfoot. And so it really then made a lot of sense to me. There's a guy, John Scaleri, who worked for Ralph for a lot of years. And he is a, a beautiful book like a coffee table book called archives the art of ralph McQuarrie, and so i went through there and he did so he did also some Battlestar galactica you know yeah i don't know if you i don't know if you know like some of his work but um and then he did et and close encounters for steven spielberg so his body of work is super impressive you know um, and so my dad then really officially gives him his first entree into the film business because he was working, as I said before, he was working for NASA and Boeing, but hadn't done anything in film. So that was kind of a fun thing. And then, um, so then Jaime is like former Disney. So he had kind of his thing, but that kind of brings up people some people either they either love the soundtrack or they hate it. Um, my dad told me that he put those songs in there because they needed a transition. They had to do that for the transition, and that was his least favorite part of the movie, Doggy Creek. Um, but as I said, a lot of people. I'm working on the soundtrack now, and I'm going to release the soundtrack separately. So, and I think I have enough for a double. Double album, I think they call it. So uh, I'm almost finished with that. I have the master done. So it's been a whole uh, process. <laughs> it's, I mean, you've, it sounds like you've gotten so much stuff restored um, that's, that's coming back out. But one thing I want to ask, there's, there's two act, other actors I want to ask you about from two different movies. One's The Norseman. Yeah. Um, Lee Majors. Yeah. So what was he like? So, so Lee Majors was a big star at that time. He was at the height of his stardom. You know, he had been the bionic man. Mm-hmm. 
and was married to Farrah Fawcett. And they were kind of like the Brad and Angelina Jolie, you know, kind of they were the hot couple of their time. Um, I think that he was pretty, I, I saw him, okay, I actually went to, I probably shouldn't say this, but uh, I went to a, so we were invited to go to a wet t-shirt contest that was being held across the street from the hotel we were staying at. And so I guess about seven or eight of us went. And he was super uncomfortable, okay? And he was, like, looking everywhere because he was afraid that the paparazzi were going to take the picture of him, which, of course, it was a very, you know, logical thing. And, you know, he was married to Farrah Fawcett, so it was, he didn't stay but for a few minutes. And it wasn't my kind of thing either. They invited me, and they all said, oh, let's go get a whatever drink. And so we went over there. So that was, but, uh, and then on the set, like, so when they were on the set, they really had a boat out there in the water. And so I wasn't out on the boat. I would come in, um, I think I was in the 10th grade or something then. So uh, I went for my Easter break. I was there for like two weeks while they were shooting. And I would go out to the set, but... uh you know, there were a lot of mosquitoes, and like I said, you were over on the shoreline, so you weren't in the, you know, but there were, so I do remember a couple times when I was out there, there were sharks that had been sighted in the bay, so that was like, they were all, it's like, oh, did you know that there's sharks that they just, oh, it's like, no, anyway, uh, and Susie Quayle was in that movie, she was married to Sonny Bono at the time, and my dad actually became close to Sonny Bono from that experience. Uh, Chastity Bono came in. Cher actually came in. So I'm trying to think who else was there. Oh, uh, Mel Ferrer, who had been married to Audrey Hepburn, mm-hmm. was in it. And Deacon Jones, the football player. Cornel Wise. And my brother. And my brother is definitely the weak link uh, my brother's got a real southern accent in that film. <laughs> you know? He was, he was from North. South Norway. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe they didn't even dub. I think they did dub some of it. But anyway, so, yeah, it was uh, somebody. Now, I didn't get this. I heard this through, I think, my dad. But while we were there shooting that movie, two girls snuck into Lee Major's room. And Farrah Fawcett had come down, so they had left that hotel and gone, like, you know, they'd gone somewhere else, like to a much nicer hotel or whatever. And they had they were staying somewhere else. But then he came back to start shooting again. And these girls had been in his room. They had been in there for, like, 10 days or two weeks. They had been staying in his room, and they were hiding under his bed. Back then, you know, they had spaces under the bed. So he had, you know, they were kind of crazy fans even back then. My dad had to hire, uh, my dad had to hire Pinkerton guards of all things because uh, he was threatened because he wasn't hiring uh, union. But then Pinkerton, I think, was union. But, uh, but you know, he didn't want to get into paying all those unions. He had to pay SAG and certain ones, but he didn't want to do the other unions and they were mad at him. 
My dad had security guards a lot, though. After he did Dreaded Sundown, he had security guards, too. <laughs> we had this one security guard named Timon. And he was, my dad liked to give veterans jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. So this guy was a veteran, and we would come home. My dad had a club back then. This is when we lived in Shreveport. So he had a, a jazz club, Humphreys, Humphreys on the Square. And they had really good music and stuff. But we would come back afterwards, and Tifon would be asleep in there in the guard stand. And we'd have to blow the horn to wake him up and come open the gate. <laughs> but, you know, he was a veteran, and my dad was like, oh, no, no, we're going to. And he could carry a gun, you know. He said he knew how to shoot a gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So it was a trip living with my dad. And he was, like I said, he was the boss. Now, he was real protective of me. So Andy, uh, Andy, Prine, and so especially Fonda. So I'll have to tell you a funny Fonda story. So we were working on on uh, Hawkins Breed, and I was the makeup artist, and Peter needed to wear this little fall to make his hair look a little bit longer. He's supposed to be a mountain man, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had ordered a special wig for him and everything. And so he had just flown in and we were staying outside of Nashville. And he said, he just got in there. And he said, why don't you come over later and practice putting on my fall so that tomorrow when we get start filming, that it'll go real fast. Well, that was fine with me. I had, I had, I used to call it skirting, and I didn't really care if he made a pass at me. I was pretty fast. I could get out of the way, you know, and then just and excuse myself, right? Well, my husband and I, who I'm still married to, surprisingly, but we had just gotten together. So when Peter asked me to come over to his hotel room and practice putting on this wig, I didn't think anything about it. And I said, yes. And then I told my husband I was going to go. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> not if you want me to, like, be your, because if you go there, I'm going to break up with you, <laughs> whatever. I was like, you're kidding. He's like, no, you don't go to some actor's hotel room. Oh, my gosh. Really? So, but I wasn't, it's like, okay, fine, I won't. He said, if he really wants to practice putting on the hair, Tell him to get there a half an hour early tomorrow and that you'll be there and that you can practice then. Okay. So I call Pete. Now, this is really hard, okay, because I'm the director's daughter. And so I, I'm like, hey, Peter, you did it, whatever. So I said, Look, just, if you wouldn't mind, just come tomorrow early. So the next day, he does not show up early. And my dad comes in, and I'm in the trailer, and I'm, you know, I'm waiting for Peter to get there. And my dad is hot as a hornet. He is so mad, and he goes, he comes charging in there, and he's pointing his finger at me, and he says, he says it's your fault. I said, my fault. I don't even know what he's talking about, right? And I said, my fault. My fault. And he said, Peter Fonda is refusing to come on set, and he says it's your fault. He said, what did you do to him? I said, I didn't do anything to him, Dad. I saw him for, you know, 15 minutes just at your house. Okay. I said, I didn't do, I, I said, he wanted me to come over and practice putting on his hair, but David threw a fit and told me to tell him to come a half an hour early today, but he didn't show up. And my dad looked 
he looked at me and he looked at this balloon that she's letting out. And he goes, is that what this is about? And I said, I don't know what this is about. That's my only interaction that I've had with him. My dad swings around. Okay, you could feel the light. And he, like, flies out. He doesn't even hit the steps, okay, going out of the, he, it was like a bus. And so he just jumps off, and I hear him scream, get on this agent on the phone now. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God. Anyway, 15 minutes later, we're all on set, and it, it was so awkward. I'm going to say it was very awkward, but um, so I don't think that Peter really ever liked me after that, but whatever. I meant to ask him, too. In fact, I did ask him, but he didn't really give me a good answer. Uh, I wanted to know if it was true that the story, I mean, that the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was written about him, and he told me, well, you know what they say, was his answer. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, I guess I guess we'll never know, you know, and that kind of yeah, yeah. on that lines. But it's it's I think you yeah. dodged a bullet um, by not going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have been fine with Peter Fonda. Okay, like I mean, I dealt with a lot. Of, I dealt with Andy Prime. Okay, and Andy was definitely probably worse than the other one. So I mean, uh, Andy was so when Andy was doing. Dreaded Sundown. I don't mean to turn this into an X-rated show, but when he was doing Dreaded Sundown with my dad, my dad had a bus, like an old, I mean, it wasn't old, it was good. It was a new coach bus that had been converted over into a motor home or whatever. So when he was doing Dreaded Sundown, he was in Texarkana, and he parked that bus at my mother's house. That used to be his, my mother and he were getting a divorce, so he would park the bus over at my mom's. And so, you know, those buses are pretty secure. So some of my girlfriends and I decided that we wanted to sleep out in the bus. And uh, so my mom said, okay, or whatever. And But my dad was already dating Cindy at that time. And Cindy had all her makeup in there. And so there was this makeup mirror. Anyway, we were going to play with makeup. We were young. Dreaded sundown. I think I was. It was the summer before the seventh grade, I think. So anyway, we open up that makeup thing, and there is a Playgirl magazine in there. That was the first time I'd ever seen a man naked. Anyway, so of course, we're going to open it up and look at it, and we do. And the centerfold is Andy Prime. Okay, Andy is in that magazine. I almost fell over. I almost fell over. (laughs) And then... I wasn't supposed to be, of course, look at, but I did tell my mother. I was like, mother. Anyway, so that was kind of funny. Later on, I went to the opening of uh, when Andy did V later on. He starred in that television series in the 80s, and I went with him to the opening and some parties promoting that, and it was kind of funny because I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> the first time I saw you, I was like, it was you in that magazine in the centerfold. <laughs> So that was kind of funny, but most of the time, my dad was so, you know, he was just uh, like Andy would say, "Oh, Uncle Andy will take her home, you know, drive me home or something." And my dad would say, "No, I don't think Andy needs to. Uncle Andy needs to get close at all, you know." And my dad would stop him, but you know, and my dad was like that on 
He was super. I wanted, I was in all my dad's movies. And everybody else had their SAG card. And I moved out to L.A. And I wanted to be an actress. And I had enough credits, so I wanted my SAG card, too. And I asked my friend. So, anyway, I ended up getting, so my girlfriend was with me. She was in The Evictors. Okay, she plays one of the murder victims in The Evictors. And so I get us an agent, right? Mm -hmm. And the agent says, you need your SAG card. I'm like, okay, no problem. So I get back and I call my dad and I said, Dad, guess what? I got an agent. Roxy and I got, he's ready to sign both of us, but we have to have our SAG card. Can you write us the letter? And whatever. And he knows exactly what letter that is because he's written a million of those letters to SAG so people can get their SAG cards. Well, about a week later, Roxy gets hers, but mine never came. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, he was not, he did not want me to be an actress. He kept, every time I talked to him, you need to come on home. You need to come on home. <laughs> so, anyway, so it's good, though. Now I'm actually super appreciative that he was that protective and even that my husband was that protective. So, uh, you know, anyway, so it's, it's different now, too, uh, to come back and be involved from a side where, you know, I own the film, I'm booking the film, you know. There's a, I have a lot of ideas for the movie, too, and, and ways to make it relevant for today, you know. Yep. So, um, but, you know, today you can't just, my dad would actually, even though they would hang up on him in the beginning, uh, you know, you could actually get a person on the phone. Today you can't even get anybody on the telephone, you know. It, it, I know from trying to get interviews with people, it is, it is tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's, and like I said, I've gone super slow to make sure that, uh, that I'm doing the right thing. Cause I'd rather just hold off and not do anything instead of, you know, a couple of times people have asked me, it's, there's, you know, there's a show on right now and they were like, Oh, can we use your, some film, some footage, you know? For, and I was like, yeah, because that's actually good for Foggy Creek. You know, it keeps it out there and people talking about it and all that stuff. So I was good with that. And then so they sent me the release. And when I read the release, it literally read that I was giving them, you know, permission to use the film as much as they wanted to, da 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 da, da and all the assets. And it was like, no, you need to tell me what, you know, you need to give me the time stamps on that and tell me exactly what you're, you know, you want to use. Okay. You, you know, cause it, I mean, but literally uh, that one release, I was giving away everything for nothing for free. So it's just amazing. You really, you think, Oh, nobody would ever send you something like that, but yet they do. You always got to um, redefine print because otherwise you never know what the, the you know, what you're sending or selling, signing off on. Oh yeah. So, and I don't even like, I, I get tons and tons. I, I mean, I, I don't even know how many contracts and agreements I've been sent. And most of the time I, I send them literally straight off to the lawyer. Cause I'm not going to read all that stuff. I'm just, but I have read, I've read legal documents with my husband for years and years, but, most of it's so badly written, it's just even, uh, I can't even go there. But um, so, 
to tell you the truth, and it's just overwhelming a little bit. So I don't even. Uh, I'm just like I said, I've gone slow. My dad also, when he was uh, later on, like in the eighties, I remember he would. So he liked to watch television, and he would watch. We would. Uh, he had his big screen TV, and he would even. We would set the timers. He loved to watch Judge Wapner, and we used to watch these really kind of people's court and stuff like that so uh we would go back there and they would run these commercials during that time for do you remember the singer christy whitman she would sing one day at a time sweet jesus yes yeah and she'd say call 1-800-555-1212 or whatever you know say get my get your copy today and she'd just go on and it'd be every single commercial and my dad, I remember my dad saying, that's the way you need to do it, where you own it, you, and then you, it's, you know, so, uh, it's been kind of interesting too, to do it the way that I have been able to do it. It's different though, because it's very unusual to have a classic film that has the recognition that this one does and then having it controlled or owned by an individual, you know? Like I had to hire an aggregator for to get it up on Amazon and that kind of stuff because you can't just go upload it, you know. Yep. Now there's there's one other uh, actor I wanted to ask you about. Um, okay. And that's Jessica Harper from the Evictors. Yeah, Jessica Harper. So you know, Jessica Harper is a really good singer and everything. She's multi-talented. Um, I have not seen her since. Of Victor's, she was also she's very she was very quiet. I didn't know her that well. Um, I was on the set there. Some I was in high school a little bit later there, and I just remember her being on set. Not really. She was not a drama queen or any. She wasn't high maintenance. None of that kind of stuff. Like some people, like Jacqueline Smith. My dad had to ban her from seeing the dailies because she would get so upset seeing herself. Um, now, that may have been my dad just early on and then didn't let actresses see their dailies after that. But, you know, some people were more high. Some of his leading ladies were more high maintenance than others. And Jessica Harper was not high maintenance. That was another one that was kind of uh, Michael Parks. I had come there. So I was going to school not too far away from there. So I would come in with my friends or whatever, and we would just kind of drop into the set, which probably was a little bit disruptive. But uh, we would, and they were shooting in a real house. That That's a real, and I think it's even still standing, believe it or not, that they used in that movie. Mm-hmm. And I was up. Stairs and now Michael Parks was a famous actor even by that time he had been in the Bible and he had been on a couple TV series I think but I remember they came and told me that I needed to leave because I was making Michael nervous so I had to leave so uh, but and I remember Vic Morrow being downstairs at my dad's so my dad had a theater in his house there and he had a bar in the back. And so he had the TV there and a phone and everything. And so my dad was upstairs and he said, go downstairs and keep Vic 
company until I can get down there. He was doing something else. He said, I'll be down there in a few minutes. Just go down and talk to him until I get down there. So I go down. I'm walking in. I'm walking around the corner, and he's on the telephone. And I don't know who he's talking to, but he is yelling, and he is cussing. He was really giving it to somebody, and I thought, there is no way I'm walking into that, you know? Oh, I understand that. Yeah, so I just kind of backed up, and then I don't really, I wasn't really on set when Dick Morrow was shooting, but I, but, you know, that afternoon, I was in the, in the theater with him just for a second, but, uh, and then I remember right after that is when he ended up dying in that horrible accident on Twilight Zone, and all I could think about is him yelling that. He was really angry, and I thought, "Oh gosh, I hope that was not indicative," you know, because mm-hmm. that was it was just a really kind of strange thing to see somebody, you know, have just that one second like glance, and then hear something like that. You know, it was shocking. Now I don't know if you know this, but the the movie poster for Victors was done by Drew Struzan, who did all the Star Wars posters and Back to the Future. And the documentary, The Man Behind the Poster, is Drew Struzan. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think that he did it because I think that Ralph was busy working for Lucas and couldn't do, you know, because he was very loyal to my dad, even after, you know, he got famous with Star Wars. He still was very, like, he still did work for my dad. And I think it was because my dad had given him that first break, you know. And also, I think it's just the way your dad would deal with people, you know, and if, if you're dealing with people in a professional and kind and generous way, yeah. then, then people are yeah. going to be more likely to do stuff for you. And I think Work, that's reflective yeah. of your dad's working relationships. Yeah, I think so. He he really, he had great, great, great respect for Ralph McCleary. And I think Ralph was real quiet and, uh, you know, not like very humble. He was a very humble man. And, you know, in this business, it's, you know, that's, that's a rare trait, to be honest with you. That is true. Because yeah. when people get famous, it's so hard to fight off that tendency to start to feel, uh, to get more full of yourself. Yeah. It, yeah. With the, the fame, and my dad absolutely hated it. If he got any hint of any kind of prima donna attitude, he just, he did, oh, he just didn't like, you know, he didn't like it. He wasn't going to work with them. And, you know, it's just, yeah, he did not. I think my dad had to be the only prima donna on set, to be honest with you, because my dad was the one. Now, he didn't, you didn't see drama when he was on there, really. Um, but, you know, when, when he said get Fonda's agent on the phone, he had complete control of his set. You know, he was not going to let some actor tell, you know, hold up his production. I mean, he had people there that he was paying right there, and uh, they weren't going to do it. He'd just replace them. So, and he did that. Don Wells was a replacement for someone else on Dreaded Sundown. They, he had cast somebody else, and they, he had them in there for a day, and they couldn't get their lines. And he was just like, he called Don, and he said, you know, we'll fly you out, and it'll be three days, and I'll pay you X, and, you know, so she got on a plane. <laughs> so, uh, he, my dad always, 
like he he cast my brother a lot, you know, when my brother was young, especially. And I think that that was a little bit, you know, he was living a little bit, he lived a little bit vicariously through my brother in the acting roles and stuff. And my dad actually wanted to be an actor more than he wanted to be a director or a writer. I mean, he just, he loved the acting part. I don't know why, but uh, he really did. He And even when, so his friends would tell me, I think I told you this before, his friends told me even when he was a kid in school, he would act out these stories for them. And that's what he would do with us. That's why it was so scary. You know, he would act that stuff out when he was telling you the creepy story. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was a, he was a practical joker too. He liked to uh, big practical joker. He when they were doing the news, he one of the guys that worked. You know, they would be there back then. It was the ten o'clock news in Texarkana. That so he was back then. He was working for KTAL uh, KTAL, and so they'd be there. You know, they'd get out at ten thirty, eleven, whatever time it was, and so. You know, it was a slow news night. They'd just stand around kind of and talk because they do the six and ten is what it was, two news programs. So he, uh, this one guy, they were talking about the scariest thing that they could think of if that happened to him. What would be the scariest thing? And this guy said that if somebody were hiding in the back of his car, that's, that's his big fear that somebody would be hiding in the back seat. So my dad waits a really long time, okay? He mm-hmm. waits like months or whatever and, and plotting all along. But he goes and he hides in this guy's back seat, okay? When they got out of work or something and the guy comes, starts up his car, my dad comes around, you know, from behind and the guy floored it and like ended up in the ditch and they didn't get hurt. But, you know, my dad thought that was the funniest thing ever. He thought that was hilarious. And so, but not everybody, like, being the recipient of something like that, you know, recipient, you don't really, you don't really appreciate it that much, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Especially driving so, your car into a ditch. Yeah, yeah, no. So, uh, anyway, but he was a character. He was, uh, I don't know if you know, too, he, he ends up singing the song. Uh, this is where the... Uh, Nobody sees the flowers. No, wait, that's Travis Crabtree. He sings the one uh, "Lonely Cry." Listen to my lonely cry. That's my dad singing. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he said that he really wanted Andy Williams, but he couldn't afford him. And so uh, they had hired my dad used to stay in Burbank. And I think it was the Sheraton or something. Anyway, they had a lounge there. Okay. Like, you know, the old singer. And so there was, they had the real lounge singers in there. And so uh, this guy was in there. My dad thought he was really good. And my dad thought he would really be able to sing that song. So he asked him to come over. They, they recorded it. They had a, the MGM orchestra is who, you know, and they were at MGM. So he, it's the guy to come over, and he said that he was absolutely horrible, that there was a huge difference being able to sing, you know, I guess like that, and then singing in a lounge. So they went ahead and they paid him, and then 
so Jaime says, Charlie, you just do it to hold the space, you know, so that we've got something there to hold the space, and then we'll find somebody else. So my dad does it. I just got a recording, like, you know, back, you know, where they were, it's like, you know, one, two, three, and and then my dad even sings it without the orchestra. So, you know, they would do that without any, somehow they, I forgot what they call it, but it's some kind of a audio where they do it two ways and a singer, it's easier for them to sing it. Anyway, I just got that, um, which is super fun. But the, uh, then when it comes time to replace it, they haven't found anybody and he's totally run out of money. So, Jaime said, we're leaving it. It's better than the guy, you know, better than the lounge singer. So we're just going to leave it. And so that's how that turned out to be. <laughs> Sometimes, so, but that, that was his least favorite part of the movie. Well, I, I, and, and, you know, some people don't like hear themselves sing and that kind of stuff, but it's just, yeah, it, it is what it is in the end. I mean, you, you, you run out of money, you got to do something. But like I said, a lot of people tell me that they put Boggy Creek on in the background because it has a soothing, calming effect on them. <laughs> so, you know, go figure. I mean, it, and it's almost divided down the middle. When I first decided to do this and started working on it and everything, I was, you know, Wild Blackburn's been super helpful with me, uh, to me. And he told me that one of, the most frequently asked questions that he got was, is the soundtrack available? So, and we do have a sample. I have a sample of it up on the website, www.legendbuggycreek.com. So there is, you can hear all of the different tracks. Now also on that same website, people can purchase the Blu-ray, correct? The Blu-ray slash DVD. Correct. Yep the blu-ray dvd and then we also have t-shirts we have the most fabulous hoodies for like fall they're perfect and then we have uh we have posters we have the mcquery poster and soon i'll have hats again so and i'm working on some other stuff i'm working on a lot of products actually i want to my goal is Similar to what Duck Dynasty did at Walmart, you know, I think that that I could take the Bigfoot Macquarie logo and have party goods. Like people tell me all the time that they have Bigfoot parties, but there's nothing that's a you know a consistent thing through it. Whereas if we took the Macquarie image, and you know, I have a cutout. I'm looking at a cutout in my I'm in my office now, and I have, like, a big, I think he's eight foot tall. He's whatever the, you know, anyway. But, so I'm working on stuff like that as well, you know. So uh, school supplies, I, I have long thought that, you know, notebooks with the big foot on the front is, you know, I would love to have a notebook like that, you know. Well, I think so. And also you can get the, um, a lot of people with their laptops in colleges and stuff like that, get those vinyl stickers that they can put on them. I can just imagine yeah. the vinyl stickers, um, being, being something that a lot of people would want. Yeah. My daughter says, mom, you got to do patches. You got to do patches. So, um, 
But when I start doing that, oh my gosh, I really kind of need a partner to do all that stuff. Because I, this, this, here's the other thing too, is it really has been a learning process. You know, I, I never really uh, set out to do this like this per se. It's, uh, I mean, I'm glad that I'm doing it now. It's been a huge honor and it's been, you know, it's a ton of fun. But each thing I have to kind of learn the process. And, you know, it's not that big a deal, but, when, you know, I'm going to give you an example. All right. So when we were doing the Blu-ray DVD, I needed it to be authored. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so I had already decided that I was going to use this company, Disc Makers, to, to press the disc. And they did authoring and I think it was like twelve hundred dollars or something like that. Maybe two thousand. It wasn't a whole lot. Maybe two thousand. But I was trying to cut corners because I you know, and I thought to myself, well how hard is authoring if you know the software that you know and and if I pick someone so I had gone to a convention and I had been next to a person that made dvd documentaries or whatever and they said that they had put their film up on amazon themselves because i just had had to hire an aggregator and they told me that they did all their own authoring i was very impressed okay i was like you did that all yourself and i know that there's some people that are good at you know, doing that, and I know that Seth, I think that Seth does a lot of, you know, breed love on his small town monsters. I think he does a lot of his that himself. So I was thinking, well, how hard can it be, right? And here's the biggest thing. My dad did that all the time. My father would give people an opportunity to do something, right, like that, and he gave a lot of people their very first break. So I'm thinking, oh, I'll go in that and I'll save a little bit of money. So I I told this person I would, in exchange for them doing the work, I would give them credit on the outside cover, right? Yeah. So a special thanks. That's what I would would give them a special thanks. So anyway, I, it's, so the person doesn't send me anything on, on email or iCloud or anything. I'm getting little pictures on Facebook messenger i don't see that well to be honest with you okay i'm when i'm on facebook messenger i'm pretty much on my phone you know mm-hmm. so i wasn't really i wasn't really looking at it but i'm thinking to myself i mean actually i'm not thinking at all i guess so i get the thing and i'm about to send it to this makers to press it right and i'm like okay let me go watch this let me just and so i put it uh i i it pops up on the screen, and the first thing that pops up, it has this person's name, their company name, whatever. And, and it's like, like they put their special things right there, the first screen of the authoring. Like, it just pops up with their name. And so instead of picking out, like, a moving section or something like that, they had taken this one screen that said Pierce Ledwell Productions or whatever, you know, that, which doesn't even exist anymore. I own the film now, you know what I'm saying? But they took that that as their static 
background, right? Oh my God. Well, first of all, I couldn't get past that. I was like, so I called him right away. I said, you got to take that down. <laughs> I said, you know, I want this to be just like everybody else's. Like when, when the film comes up and it pops up, I want, I want the same thing as everybody else. You know, like I don't want your name right there. The first thing, literally, that was the first thing that popped up. Cause you got to take that. It was like, so he didn't want to take it down. Well, he thought that he had me in a bind, right? And that I was under all these time constraints. And then he, anyway, so it was, it was, honestly, it was kind of extortion. You know, he said, you've got two choices. I was like, nobody, I got a third choice. I fire your ass and I hire dish makers. And that's the one I'm going with, you know? But in my naivety, I thought, oh, it doesn't take anything creative or something. Now, if you watch the authorings in Boggy Creek, it is brilliant. It's beautiful. It's, it's on par with the restoration, you know. This other looks so amateur. I was like, I can't believe that I felt that I actually thought that that was going to work. You know, I was like, how did my dad do that where he just gave people their chances? But, and then it was this guy's ego, okay, it was all about the ego that he wanted his name right there. And he got really ugly. Like, I don't know if you've ever dealt with narcissistic personalities, but all it all came out, you know. And he was like, no, he wanted his name on there right there. And otherwise, I was going to owe him all this. Oh, he was going to charge me to take it off. I said, no, <laughs> uh-uh. no, we're not going to play that game, you know. So I've had a couple of, and then that it set me back. It set me back because then I had to hire disc makers and had to get in there. You, you know, it took me another two weeks. I mean, late. And it cost me more money, you know? Yep. So, but, but you learn. I mean, I learn on all these things. I'll never make that mistake again, <laughs> you know? So, uh, all of the things have been, you know, and, and now the movie business has changed so much from when my dad was in it. I mean, he was pioneering independent film at that time and making the rules kind of new because that didn't exist. But it's all changed again, you know, with everything digital and streaming and new players, you know. Things are always adapting and altering as, as we go through with time. Yeah. I mean, the ways of distribution are completely different now. Now, so, but four, four wall still exists. You can still four wall. <laughs> now, for for listeners that are in, they can follow you on Facebook on um, what particular site? Yeah, so the Legend of Boggy Creek is on Facebook. So I'm there, and I'm also on Twitter, though I'm not as often on there, and I'm not. I'm on Instagram as well, all under Legend of Boggy Creek. But most of everything comes out of Facebook. And that, I, I wear a lot. I wear a lot of hats with my dad. My husband was saying something. I was like, "Yes, I'm advertising. You know, I do all the copy. <laughs> like I take the picture. I mean, like I do. I wear. And I'm I'm skipping and handling. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. Well, I mean, I think it's just you're used to that growing up, where your dad was able to do all that. But also, you're going to be at a convention soon. Um, October 22nd through the 24th at Monster Bash, where people can meet you in person and purchase the DVD, Blu-ray, and um, other products there too, I'm sure. Um, 
I'm excited because yeah. that, that's where I'm going to get my copy from is when I get to see you there. And um, well, what are, any, are you going to have anything else there with you besides the Blu-ray? Yeah, so I'll probably bring some posters, the McQuarrie uh, uh, movie poster. And I have a smaller one as well, a little, you know, kind of compact. Those are popular at the convention. But I'm super excited to be there. This will be the first time I've ever been at the convention where I actually had a Blu-ray DVD because when I first got them, then the pandemic hit and everything closed down. So it'll be fun to have that at the show. I got a feeling it's going to be a big seller, um, you know, because it's just I know in that group because I've gone to Monster Bash many times and uh, you're going right into the um, everybody's wheelhouse, so to speak. Nice. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. And I'm going to bring a couple of my daughters. They're going to come and they're very excited about coming as well. So it should be fun. Uh, we ha- I have another show then in December uh, in Actually, in Marshall, Texas, it's the first Texas Bigfoot Film Festival. So that one should be fun, too. And uh, Eduardo Sanchez from Exist and Dave Coleman and I think Lauren Coleman. Quite a few people from, you know, Bigfoot Films will all be there. So that's going to be exciting, too, I think. Well, I think so too, because you got to have you got to have this one. If you're having the Bigfoot Festival, you, this movie must be there. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually a little bit different. This is a film festival. So, and it, but it's Craig Woolheater, who Craig does the the South Festival. When I come back to Texarkana, so so I just have been back in 2018, but I hope to come back and I hope to make it an annual event. But when I've done that, he's done a Falk festival at the same time which has been very popular i'd like to do a charles b pierce film festival actually i would love that and i would love it if 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 somehow down the road you were able to do a charles b pierce film collection you know because everybody likes to get those collecting collector sets yeah that that would be that would be really cool because i have i have a lot of different versions of his film but it'd be nice to have them all together in one spot yeah, I think so. And like I said, a lot of them were in a bad ratio. The other one, uh, uh, Boggy Creek 2, could be greatly improved on, I think. There's a lot of them that need a little bit of work. I think the Northman just came out in a in a Blu-ray as well. But uh, that's definitely on my to-do list at one time to do a box set, a Charles B. Pierce box set. I have a little mock-up one. I'll post it on the Facebook page. So I have a mock-up of the, you know, the complete works or whatever. So, but I, so far I've, I've concentrated on Boggy Creek. And then Mr. Redwell also gave me the rights to the bootleggers, which uh, is probably my dad's least seen film. But it's a very good movie. Uh, it's Jacqueline Smith. And Paul Coslow, who was, you know, a real actor's actor. And Dennis Simple and Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens would go on, I think, to do Blazing Saddles. Or maybe he had just done it. No, he. I'm not sure, but I know he was in Blazing Saddles and he was in the Doctor yeah. Strange Love. I mean, Slim Pickens is in just right. about everything. I mean, it's... It, yeah. yeah. I think he had done Doctor Strange Love. And then, then he, right after he did Blazing Saddles. 
my mother actually went to the premiere of Blazing Saddles with Slim and Maggie Pickens. That had to be of, something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think somehow, I don't know, but Stacy Keach ended up, there was something that was connected to him too. But yeah, that, so that was so that was uh, bootleggers. And it has the same, a lot of the same people, the same uh, editor, the same conductor, Jaime Mendoza Nava. It has the same, uh, I think, so you know what, the cinematographer, oh, that's a big deal. Bootleggers is that Kat Fujimoto is the cinematographer who won an Oscar. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. His name is Kat, T-A-K, Fujimoto. And he he won an Academy Award for I think Philadelphia, but he also did Silence of the Lambs. And Bootleggers was his second film. He had just come off of um, the Badlands. He he was the cinematographer on the Badlands, you know, with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he, yeah, he, 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 I'm looking at his um, credits now. Like he did the Sixth Sense. Um a whole bunch of different things. I'm trying to see the science of the lambs. He was Boston society film critics award for best cinematography. And he was nominated for the BAFTA um, devil in the blue. Dress. He won for Philadelphia, right? He won. Did he, he won the Academy award for Philadelphia, I think, right? It's not listed in his, I'm, well, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. It's not listed there. Okay. But that doesn't mean he didn't win it. I mean, it's, it is. Yeah, I think he won for, yeah, he won for Philadelphia with Tom Hanks. But another one that's kind of interesting uh, was Bud Davis. Look, Bud Davis up. He was he played the Phantom in Dreaded Sundown, and Bud goes on. Now he was a stunt man, and he was always a stunt man. But my dad figured that that was such a physical role, and you didn't it didn't matter what you look like, you know, because he was under the mask. So he hires Bud to play the Phantom, and then Bud goes on to do a lot of lot of films, including like Forrest Gump, and you know, not that Forrest Gump had a lot of stunt work in it, but he was head of the stunt department or whatever. So he also has had a very distinguished career. So it's been fun to kind of watch these people, and both you know, before like the Ben Johnsons, and you know. And Andy was Andy Prime was even a big star by the time my dad was hiring him. I, not too long ago, I saw Miracle Worker with Patty Duke and didn't realize that Andy had been in that. But I think that was his, one of his big breaks. That was definitely one of his early ones. I know um, he was in Andy Prime was in um, Chisholm and um, what else? Uh, uh, Simon. King of the Witches. I mean, there's a lot of films, and besides V, I mean, I remember him so vividly in the V miniseries. Yeah, yeah. My dad and Andy were close. You know, they got along really well. I talked to Andy not too long ago. You know, he goes to a lot of these shows, but then right when I started doing the shows, then COVID kind of broke out, so I haven't been able to see him. But. Uh, a couple of, you know, Boggy Creek fans, they go to these shows, and he was there, and they called me or something. Uh, in about, I'm trying to think what year it was, maybe 97, I went to Memphis 
and they had a big Western convention that my dad appeared at with my brother, and Andy was at that show. You know, that was kind of at the beginning of the autograph shows and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, my dad went for Winds of Autumn, I guess, and, you know, all his Western stuff. But he uh, he would absolutely be tickled pink with my my daughters that have gone into film. Chloe is just amazing, my oldest daughter has done she's become a production designer and she's very good very very good and she built her own tiny home and my dad loved he had buses he had Winnebago's it didn't matter he loved his like you know recreational vehicles and so my daughter built a tiny home out of recycled materials from her film set if you can believe that, that uh, that were donated or whatever, and now she got she's gotten a big time book deal, and I can't say with who yet, but it'll be announced soon. She signed her contract and everything, and she's in the process of photographing it and writing it and all that stuff. So, and she uh, builds sets as well for TJX. That's like you know Marshalls and. Um, all of those. So she, she's a set builder. I think she was just promoted also to props. She's doing some prop work, and then she's done movies. Um, she just did a Christmas movie with uh, Denise Richards and Barbara Eden, and she also did a movie with uh, Amy in a Cage. It's called with Chris, Kristen Glover and Terry Moore about a pandemic of all things way before the pandemic hit. I think it was in 2015. So uh, it's actually a really good movie too. They say that uh, in the, her review, in the reviews, they say that, you know, all these stars are in it, whatever, but the real star is behind the scenes and it's Chloe Barthow, you know, as, as a set designer. So she's kind of an up and coming. Uh, and my dad would be, She's brilliant at her own. She'll be producing her own work, I'm sure. If you she has a website as well, ChloeBarslow.com, and if you go over there and look, you, you can see examples of her work. But she'll produce uh, like fine art photographs and you know things as well. She's done Medusa, and she has you know reptile wranglers that she works with, and you know she. She's the fashion editor for New Hampshire Magazine, so she knows a lot of models. And, you know, she's very efficient, effective. She wears a lot of hats. She's a real hard worker, you know, and super creative and stuff. So my dad would just be thrilled, thrilled. And uh, and then another daughter that's really coming up, uh, Olivia Barslow. And uh, she's... Libby's really good at producing her own content as well. Both of them are pretty, uh, pretty. They have a lot of followers on Instagram and TikTok. And Chloe, and both of them are actually being hired as influencers. So Chloe just did some work for Benjamin Moore, and uh, Libby does it for like Crabtree and Evelyn. Which do you know Crabtree and Evelyn? No. It's a, it's like an English. You know, they make soaps 
sweats and lotions. It's real English ladylike, you know. So it's, uh, probably not it's the target fun, audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're not the target. But, you know, for a girl, that's really flattering, you know. So, uh, anyway, Libby's building her own little tiny bus. She's following into her sister's footsteps a little bit, but uh, she bought a bus, a school bus, and is redoing it. But I'm super impressed because she's doing all the work herself with these heavy, like, real machines. Like, she had to cut those bolts and get all those seats out, and it was, oh, my gosh, it was rushed, and she did all that stuff, and now she's laid the floors, and I'm just really impressed, you know. I would have given up long ago. But she puts that up. She has a little, she, she's on TikTok and, you know, Instagram, so she puts all that content up there. And uh, anyway, so I'm just shocked at how, you know, it comes really naturally to them. So it must be in the genes, you know. Your, your dad's legacy is continuing on, and then who knows what the future is going to hold with the next generations. You know, it's uh, where it's yeah. going to go. Yeah, it's exciting to think about. I really, um, you know, with, with we were talking about technology has uh, changed so much, and I love it. I think that that's fabulous that our phones can edit and do all of the things that we can take it with us and you know, FaceTime was my dream invention when I was a kid, thinking, oh, my God, wouldn't that be so cool if you could just talk to somebody, you know, like that. Never thinking that we'd be able to do it on the road, you know. So uh, I just think it's a, such a wonderful time to be alive and to have this opportunity. And I think about Bobby Creek, and I, I really do think about things like, oh, my gosh, could you imagine what it would be like at the IMAX theater, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I really do hope to use technology uh, to integrate it along with Boggy Creek. I think Boggy Creek would make a fabulous theme ride or attraction, you know, whether it be a escape room or, you know, a video game like we talked about. So um, I think that all of those things could be and should be. I, I if it hadn't have happened the way that it did where Mr. Ledwell owned the copyright and he didn't need the money and he didn't shelve it and put it away, then all of those things would exist today, I'm sure, probably, you know? Well, I but, think so. It, it, would, it would definitely have a different history. But as everything happens for a reason, I think it ended up going the path it did, which led you to do what you're doing and yeah. that journey. And I think um, in the end, it, it, it's coming out just in time for its 50th anniversary next year. I mean, yeah. if you look at it, there's a lot of things that are happening. And uh, I think it's going to be so eye-opening to people when they see the, the version, especially if you can get some phantom events to show it or even drive-ins to show it. Um, yeah. That would be so awesome to see because even I'm, I've had some movies that I've always seen on TV and I own on DVD or Blu-ray Every so often, you'll see um, a, a theater, local theater in our area, in the Baltimore area, will have it do um, uh, classics of film type thing, a re revival right. film. And you go there, and it's right. just, and you see it and get that full cinematic experience, and you're just like, oh, this is the way it was meant to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> it is fabulous to see it on the big screen. I mean, I love seeing it. 
you know, downloading it from Amazon or whatever. That's thrilling and so much fun. But there's just something about sitting in a great theater and watching it on the big screen. When we went home back to, so now it's called the Perot Theater. And believe it or not, um, what's the name of the, the speakers? Hold on. Let me think. Dolby? No, they're, um, gosh, my mom and dad almost didn't get a divorce over the pair of these speakers. They're called, not Bose, but they're called, yeah, I'll think of it in just a second. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not helpful anyway, with this part. <laughs> yeah, no, they make these great speakers, and they're actually made in... I think Hope, Arkansas. They're made not very far away from Texarkana. And I think now they've they've moved the factory somewhere else, but they still have a museum there and some things still happen up there. But anyway, when I was coming back, one of the guys from Texarkana that's been there forever, he said, let me put you in touch with these guys and they will you know, lend you the, the speakers for the opening, you know, for the weekend or whatever. So we got them. They were so cool. These guys brought them over um, and set them up. So when the, like, literally it rumbled, you know, like when the, and it just the way that they calibrated the sound and everything, when, when the creatures, like, kind of breathing or grunting like you could almost feel it with that sound you know what I mean like it gave you that vibration that it was just like breathing down your neck or something you know so it was it's extremely effective and uh, like I said that was one of my big deals that the sound had to be as good as the picture and uh, I don't know if I told you this before, but we ended up, I ended up spending as much on the sound restoration as I did the film restoration. And we ended up using, though, the original magnetic sound reels. So when you hear that, that's, that was, those are the originals. And they thought that they were gone. Kodak actually, or uh, Eastman, George Eastman Museum, who restored the film, they had brought up the sound a lot, but they told me that, that the magnetic reels were too far gone. So then I'm talking to audio mechanics, and they've gotten whatever they needed from Eastman, but I'm talking to them, and I said something about the original magnetic reels, and he said, well, wait, you have the originals? And I said, yeah, but I think that they're too far gone. And he said, do me a favor, take a photo. He said, have them take photos of the box, the inside of the box, and the outside of the box. Because apparently you can tell a lot from that. Which I don't understand what that meant, but he said, and then take a picture of the actual reels and then send them to me. And then when he looked at them, he said that he wanted us to go ahead and send them to him. He's in Burbank. So we sent them out, and he was able to receive door using those which I was told would cost a little bit less money had he had to do it a different way and he told me that they were saved at the very hairy edge is what that was how he described it so that 
creature scream is the actual vocalization of one of these creatures that are said to live down there. And uh, so that would be the first recording of that sound. So that's kind of a historic pioneering, you know, aspect as well. Now, that, that, that speakers, were they in Hope, Arkansas? Yes. That would be, uh, I think, Clip. Clips, clips. Yep, clips. Yes. Yep. That's it. Clip speakers. Yeah. So they're like a pioneer also in sound. Uh, that guy won, Paul Clips won all of these like awards and he was a really interesting guy. We actually spent some time at the museum there when I was working on it and we were arranging the, the, the speakers to come. But it was, you know, they were big when they delivered them to the parole. I had a, I hired a, a, furni- a piano mover to actually get them and set them up. But they, they were big, you know, and uh, it did, it rumbled the building kind of. It was, it's very cool. So uh, they, that was a, they did some kind of pioneering sound when they did the film, too. I forgot what they called it, but uh, I've read some articles in IMDb. I pulled those articles that they cite there. And in reading them, I actually learned a lot. Because there's a little girl, you just, I did, I was kind of taught you don't ask a lot of questions, you know. <laughs> I wish it. So I didn't ask my dad a lot of questions. I should have. But uh, he told me I asked too many questions anyway. So, you know, you know, how do you deal with that? But I do, for a long time, I, growing up, I thought, wow, I'm in a really thankless position. This daughter position is not, you know, because it was just, I was just a bystander. But. Now I understand because I've watched everything, you know, mm-hmm. and I heard a lot of stuff and I was a really good speller and that kind of stuff. So my dad would ask me to spell things for him or he would ask me to edit his stuff. You know, I would edit his letters or, you know, check the spelling and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know, I got to see a lot and I would hear when he would negotiate his you know, lead actors, contracts, and all of that stuff, you know. So, uh, you know, but at that time I thought, uh, you know, I get to type for him. I get, you know, like whatever. It just it seemed like a thankless job. But now I understand it. It was like that was setting me up for now. Everything you know? happens for a reason, and it builds upon it. And Yeah, it really does. It feels like fate. Field, you know, I just, uh, and he had offered, so when I, I started to tell you this before, when I was a little girl, I'm the oldest of the three kids, and he, so he was an artist, he could draw just about anything, and he used to have these pen and inks, and anyway, so he would be working, and then I would put them away for him, and I would make his coffee for him. I would pretend like I was answering the phone, you know, at his front desk or whatever, when he he had a little ad agency on State Line Avenue. And uh, I made, he had this desk, kind of like a drafting desk, so he would would do his work at. 
and I made a like little pallet and I would kind of, I would sleep in there sometimes because I would go there after school or whatever. And so he would tell me, oh, he would say, you're going to, you're going to run my business for me one day, aren't you? And this is before he ever made movies. He was still Mayor Chuckles or whatever. And he had this uh, Pierce advertising. So, of course, I was like, yes, of course I'm going to run it. So he ends up writing me a check for a million dollars. And he said, I'm going to go ahead and pay you in advance. And so it was, you know, he did it with great flourish and whatever. And he didn't have anything close to a million dollars. I didn't think he had envisioned Boggy Creek at that time. So uh, later on, I lost the check, but it was like known in our family and stuff. And my mother sometimes, after my parents got a divorce, she'd say, it's too bad that you lost that check. (laughs) But uh, it's kind of, and I'm so far away from making a million dollars. But to run his business now and stuff, I think that he would be very satisfied. That would make him very happy. You know? I think so too. And and I'm really happy that you spent, it is time to talk about your dad and his work and your life and your daughters. It's really been an enjoyable conversation. Oh, I appreciate you inviting me so much. It's a, it's a fun thing to talk about with my dad. He's just, you know, it was a very unique experience. I was blessed for sure. Though he was definitely crazy. My dad had his definitely like he had his definite you know, side to him, but you know, that's a hope that every artist does. I think. I think so too. And, um, but I'm looking forward to meeting you at the monster bash um, in October and, um, getting in and again, actually to see you in person. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you too. And your listeners, I just, you guys come out, the monster bash is going to be great fun. It's, this is, it's been happening for a really long time now, right? On it. I think it's like 20 30. years, something like that. Yeah, it's a long time, yeah. So this or will be my first <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I, I was supposed to go, you know, last year, whatever, and then the, whatever, with the pandemic, everything's been closed down. But I, I'm really super looking forward to it. Excellent. And um, uh, listeners, um, I want to thank you again. And But listeners, listen to our next episode. We're either be doing a movie review, Decided by the Roll of a Die, an interview, and I hope everybody stays safe and um, does something fun and enjoyable. Maybe get the legend of Boggy Creek and enjoy it with your family. Here in this primitive river-bottom wilderness in southern Arkansas, along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, no one really knows. What we do know is the people around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded.
Creek, rated G.